what you have to tell us this morning. If you're the one who comes to preach as well, uh, give him clarity of mind and uh, your spirit to preach to us your word. Thank you again for the spiritual food that we're about to receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the life of the church, we've never had an opportunity to sing these Christmas hymns a cappella every week, and it's been nice to do that. Uh, it's not often done that way anymore, um, but it's been enjoyable to do that. Um, and uh, it's good to hear you all sing. I, I know we, we're looking forward, the piano will be back soon enough, um, but it's good to hear you all sing. You lift your voices to the Lord, hear you sing, and not only hear the accompaniment. So I appreciate you all singing out. It's very encouraging to hear that. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Before I read verses 1 through 7, I want to give you a little bit of my goal and desire this morning. I want you to see these passages in a big picture context. There's really no way in one sermon to exposit these seven verses completely and fully. Um, it's one of the reasons that I wanted uh, chapter 7 and 8 to be read so you would have just a little bit of some background and thought here because I want you to see there's a really a big picture that needs to be recognized when you look at Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, and moving onward later into the uh, Isaiah 53 and so forth. But I also want you to see that there's a big promise. There's a big picture and there's a big promise. And that is important to us in our understanding of the covenant. And I want you to get the background of that and see that big promise in the context of this, this big picture. But I also want you to recognize there is uh, what is, uh, to us, there is great joy. I would use the word big once again, but that sounds a little funny. But there's, there's great joy in these promises as well. And I have a, another hope that I can with this big promise, give you in this great joy some application that will be uh, thoughtful and encouraging to you this morning. But I also have another desire, and that's to set Scott up for next week. Because what he will preach next week will go not only along with this text, it will also go along with our series on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. So to some degree, I'll give you the big picture. I might even leave you hanging. So that means you've got to come back. And you need to hear the rest of this from the context of the New Testament and what Scott will preach next week. So with that in mind, let's read Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When we read these passages and you consider the idea of verse 1a and verse 2a, but there will be no, no more gloom. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. What is the gloom? What is the darkness? Well, in a historical context, this is very important to understand. When we go back to look at Isaiah 7, and we consider the context that Robin brought up just briefly, there's a sense of real importance here. King Uzziah had died. And he left a son on the throne, Ahaz. And Ahaz had not done what was right in the sight of the Lord. He had continued in the line of the kings who had openly rebelled against God, who had worshipped many idols, who had worshipped on the high places. He had continued in the long line of leavers. There was a song in the late 90s by uh, a Christian group called Long Line of Leavers. The, the song chronicled the idea of all those who had left the communion of God. Starting with Adam and Eve in the garden having to be put out of the garden because they could no longer commune with God because they would not follow His way and they did not obey His command. And starting with them, there was the long line of leavers that continued all the way up to the day of Abraham. Somewhere around 2000 to 2100 BC, Abraham was commanded to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and he took his family. And between that period of time and the time that we come to here, there's approximately 2300 to 2400 years. And in that period of years, there had been this long line of leavers. Abraham had his issues and he had not followed the Lord in certain ways, even though he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Isaac and Jacob had had their issues and their sons had had their issues. We come to the time of Moses. The people of Israel were in full swing and had been in captivity to Egypt. They had not worshipped the Lord rightly in hundreds of years. God brought them someone to bring them out of captivity. And as soon as he brought them out of captivity, it took them very little time to worship the golden calf. God was steadfast, merciful and kind to his people in all of their sin. sin. He continued to be a nurturing father to them all along the way. Even through the times of the judges, God was leading his people when they had doubt, when they would sin against God, when God would give a command. Don't take anything of the spoil. But someone in the camp took it. When the people griped and grumbled about what God had provided for them, God continued to provide. When the people wanted a king, but God warned them through his prophet, a king would be bad. You don't understand how this king will misuse you and your sons and your future generations. You need to see me as your king. And they wanted their own king, and so God was 
tender and merciful, and he fathered them along and said, fine, I'll give you a king. Even though Saul's issues were solved under King David, King David was not perfect. Multiple sins, not just with Bathsheba, but multiple sins were committed by King David over a period of his lifetime. Even though Solomon had great wisdom, the kingdom after him would tear into two. And after it tore into two, there would be many, 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 many kings of the tribes. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom would have their lines of kings. And upon those lines of kings, there were only just a a few who ever really followed the ways of the Lord, even remotely. Down through the ages, these kings continued to worship the idols of the peoples around them. God would warn them. God would warn them. Don't follow those idols. Look to me. I will provide for you. He would send his prophets time and time and time again. And here we are, some 2,300 years later. Now, for those who would say God is not merciful, I would say 2,300 years of mercy is a lot of mercy. You and I can barely stand mercy to somebody for 23 days. There's sometimes with some people we can't have mercy for 23 minutes. Scott prayed earlier as we're going to be with our families. Aren't there some family members we have that sometimes they just kind of try our patience? To even sit across the table for 23 minutes is like this great task. And yet God, for 2,300 to 2,400 years, showed his patience to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in all of their disobedience. And now God is coming to a place where he's saying, enough is enough. A time will come you must be judged. You must pay the consequences for 2,300 years of sin against me. You must see this debt as a real debt you must understand that my mercy and my grace comes with justice and payment. So in the time of Isaiah, Isaiah is called out, holy, 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 he says. The coal is put to his tongue. And after he sees the Lord in this mighty, glorious raiment, he's just prostrate and put to the ground. And the Lord says, I have a message. Who will I send? And Isaiah says, I will go. He says, you will go. You will go to a hard-hearted people. They will not listen. The more you preach truth to them, they will not hear. But you must give my message to them. So Isaiah goes. He goes to preach a message. A message of sin, its debt, its guilt. And he goes to preach a message of the great grace of God. The message he will preach will have its near future context and its far future context. The message he will preach will bring to the ears of those around them, things that they cannot see nor understand in fullness. And many will not listen. As he preaches this message, there's a history going on at the time that the kings of Israel are playing around with foreign kings and trying to come to a a basic uh, work 
relationship with them and hoping those kings will help to protect them from uh, warlording nations around them. And instead of going to their God, and even one time there's this appeal made, shouldn't a people go to their own God and not to the mystics and the spiritists around them? As that appeal is made for them to turn to their God and not to turn to the kings and trust in the kings and princes of the day to protect them. Ahaz is given an opportunity to ask a sign of the Lord. And when given that opportunity, what we see is, according to multiple writers, is that Ahaz has already made up his mind in disobedience. He doesn't want to hear the sign from the Lord because Ahaz has already made up his mind that he's going to go and put himself in with other nations and not appeal to his God. But the Lord has a great promise to bestow upon the peoples. And although Ahaz doesn't want to listen to the Lord of promise, the Lord of promise gives his promise anyway. And he promises in Isaiah 7, a child born of a virgin, and she will call his name Emmanuel. As that child is promised, in some ideology of the day, they were thinking that this would be some near future promise. Even scholars look back at it and say it had to be fulfilled at some point in time in history right then and there. And yet the issue is, is that what is told of this son and this promised son in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, it couldn't be fully fulfilled in a present future sense. It had to be something far future and far greater than they could imagine. When Israel doesn't want to listen, when the king doesn't want to listen, God promises that there will be destruction. That he will put an end. He will put an end to the injustice of those who do not want to worship him. You realize to God, the people that he created being unwilling to worship him, that is an injustice against him. Our culture today talks about injustice all the time. The greatest injustice of all is that the creation, and especially humankind, will not worship the God who created them in his image. That's an injustice. And God says, I'll put it to rest. I'll put it to rest in a near future sense for my people Israel who I have been long suffering with for 2,400 years. I will destroy these nations. The northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom will begin its destruction through Babylon in 605 B.C. About a hundred and 15 years or so later. And finally in 586 B.C. it's done away with. But he doesn't leave his people in disarray for chapter 8 as Scott brought up has promise in it. It even mentions the idea of the disciple in the chapter, the remnant, the believer. That among Israel there are those who are believers. As Paul said in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Ethnic Israel is one thing. But heart Israel is another. Not all Israel is Israel. So this promise is going to be that there will be a remnant among Israel and there will be those among the Gentiles who will be brought in. Even the idea of the Gentiles is recognized here in verse 1 of chapter 9. For as Isaiah prophesies about any future hope, 
talks about, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's Matthew chapter 4. Who is it that comes from Galilee? There is promised destruction. There is promised justice. But in all of the darkness and the gloom of the promised darkness, there is promised light. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Listen to all the pictures of how he tries to give us how it's going to be joyous when this far future promise comes into fruition. It's, it's just as in the, the, the days of fall when the harvest comes in and, and the farmer loves that harvest to come in and the people love it to come in because they know there's going to be available food and it's going to be plenty of it. Verse 4, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The promise here is of one who will take away the greatest oppression of all. It's another word that's being used quite regularly these days is oppression, isn't it? This person's oppressed, that people is oppressed, that group is oppressed. The Bible describes us all as oppressed. We're all oppressed by the weight of our sin. We're all oppressed. Sin has weighted us down. Sin is drowning every single individual on this earth. Sin is weighting them down like blocks on a man trying to swim across the river doing everything they can to hold their head up, to take the next breath in. Sin is pressing them down time and time again. Many want to see the political realm of all of this promise. But I say to you, whatever this means for the political realm, it is far greater what it means for the context of the kingdom of God in all eternity. Certainly Jesus rules and reigns, and he's ruling and reigning now. Yet I hope his reign is not simply to come in some way that we have a better government. A better government will not change my heart. We could have the best United States government, and my heart would not be changed. We could have the finest Christian leader as our president that time and man has ever known. And that does not mean that there would be genuine heart change in the lives of our nation. For the people of Israel, this had a near future sense in which they were going to be oppressed by nations. And how would that oppression be removed? Yes, there would be this removal of it in some physical sense. And yet at the same time, the problem with Israel was not just that they had warlording nations around them. The problem with Israel was a heart problem. Israel in and of itself would not bow the knee to the God who made them his people. The God that called them out of the land of Ur through Abraham. The God that brought them out of the land of Egypt when they were in captivity. Israel would not bow the knee. And they continued to worship all all the gods around them of the other nations. No political leader would fit that bill. 
They needed someone who would change the hearts and minds of the people. That they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. The near future sense of this would bring moderate, and I use that word carefully, would bring moderate, momentary peace. All the while, what we need is eternal peace. How would any of this go forward and how would it take place? Verse 6 begins to unfold this for us. For the promise is about a child. Isaiah 9, 6 corresponds with Isaiah 7 in the context of this child. This child, Emmanuel, will be born of the virgin. Here in verse 6 of chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. This son will have every governing aspect of all of life Physical life, heart, mind, and body will rest on his shoulders. And how could he carry such a weight? How could one leader carry such a weight? Have, have you noticed? Some of you, you know, you've, you've seen several presidents like I have. Have you ever noticed most presidents leave office and they look like they're about 25 years older? It's very rare that a president leaves office and you go, wow, he looks just as spry as he did when he went in. We're all looking at the man going, oh, good grief, I'm so sad for him. Even the youthful, exuberant Barack Obama, when he left office, he was wrinkled and gray. And it all happened in eight years, eight short years. What leader can bear the weight of the fullness of his people's problems? What leader can lead this way that all of the government will rest on his shoulders? The governance of all things, the cosmos, everything will rest on his shoulders. Well, Isaiah has a word to bring. And he says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Number one this morning. This promised Messiah, he is eternal wisdom. He is eternal wisdom. One writer noted, the first word, wonderful, is most significant. As in Hebrew, it comes from a root that it almost exclusively used of things that only God can do. The word wonderful here is from its root a sense of this is only something God can do. They're applying this uh, this descriptive idea to this coming Messiah, this promised Messiah, as he will do things only God can do. But in a most specific sense, this suggests that this child, according to one writer, will somehow exhibit miraculous acts of God employed in the sphere of wise planning or decision-making. Wonderful counselor. This is, this Messiah, he, he is eternal wisdom. One of the great problems of any leader is trying to be wise enough to lead in every situation. Even in the last few years, the world was put into a, a dire situation of trying to figure out how do we handle this? How do we handle that? Every leader, whether it was a company or whether it was a group of elders at a church or, or whatever it was, every, every person, whether you led a, a group of people at your work or wherever, you were trying to figure out what, what's the wise thing to do with everything that's going on around us. This promised Messiah, he is eternal in wisdom. There's nothing that's apart from his wisdom. 
He, he will be a wonderful counselor, for his wisdom is eternal. It notes the context of the promised Messiah from John chapter 1. The word was in the beginning, and the word was with God. Having that eternal wisdom is banked upon, number two, his, he is eternal in being. This promised Messiah, he is eternal in being. He's a wonderful counselor, but the text also promises here mighty God. Wow. Now that's very interesting. A son will be born, and now you're saying the son is mighty God? If we think about that for a minute, it's pretty odd. You're actually saying that whatever... And whoever this child is, who is to be born, and he is to be given, that he is linked to deity. As one writer notes, the second phrase confirms the first phrase. The impression is clearly given that deity is being ascribed to the child. This is why some refer to him as the God-man. Although in Scripture the best... References to him are both that which he is called the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is very man of very man, and he is very God of very God. This promise is that which is given to the people right before their eyes and their ears. This son, this child that will be born, he'll be a wonderful counselor, eternal in wisdom, and he is mighty God. He is eternal in being. And you begin to connect the dots from this passage in Hebrews, excuse me, in Isaiah 9 to Isaiah chapter 10. In verse 20, there's a promise from Isaiah, speaking of the remnant. Now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. And where do they return? To the mighty God. To call this son mighty God and here for Isaiah to say that the remnant will return to the mighty God means that this son is deity. There is none like him as ruler and reigner of over all things. One writer notes, no other person ever has God's name and God is never called Moses or Abraham, or David, or Jeremiah. There's only one person who has God's name, and it's the Messiah, Jesus. There must be something very special about this son that causes him to have God's name, mighty God. Can you take a pause just for a minute and see why it's so horrific that Ahaz wouldn't want to listen? Have you ever gotten something in your mind and you've made up in your mind before you've ever talked to anyone else, I'm going to do it this way? And you get that made up in your mind. You, you say, I'm going to do it this way. And then you go talk to some other people and they give you other information. And you kind of pause a second. But then you say, nah, I'm still going to do it my way. And years later you realize, I did it the wrong way. I should have listened to some of those people who were trying to tell me to do it different. That's exactly what Ahaz is doing. Isaiah has been sent to him to give him future promise, near future for his people. Look, look, stick together, Ahaz. Worship God here. Go, go, go consult the God who has raised you up 
out of Egypt. Go consult him. Don't go to these other rulers, these other nations, these other people who they worship false gods. Don't go there. You consult your God. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I don't want to hear all that. When he said, no, I don't want to hear all that, he's saying, I don't want to hear about the mighty God coming and rescuing his people. How sad for a leader to say that. How sad is it for us when we say, no, I don't want to hear about that Messiah. I want to do it my way. Number three, he is eternal in compassion. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Eternal Father. Now, this is very important here. I want you to note this, and one writer summed it up best. He says, this does not mean the child will be God the Father. Rather, the emphasis is on the character he bears and the manner in which he cares for his children with father-like compassion and tenderness. Jesus is the Son. He's always been the Son. There's never a time when he was not, and there's never a time when he was not the Son. Jesus existed in eternity past. Jesus does not, even in the incarnation, become the Father. He is still the Son. The reference here is to the idea of his eternality in compassion. The Father has shown this compassion. Think about the context. Remember the big picture? 2,300 years of compassion shown to the people of Israel. And now what is being promised to them is that the Father is sending his Son. Oh, wait a second. Didn't the kings of Israel send their sons down to rule and reign too? And how did the sons of the kings of Israel do? How did Uzziah's son do? You see the contrast, don't you? Here, this promised son is saying he is of the Father and he will have the same kind of compassion for his people that the Father has shown. The Son is of the same essence of the Father in His being. He is eternal in being, and therefore He will be eternal in compassion, just as the Father is. We certainly could speak of the Son that is promised ruling and reigning and judging sin, and He will do so. And the wrath that will be brought by the judgment of the Son will be the wrath of God the Father. It's real. We shall not turn away from it and act as if it's not real. And yet at the same time, hear of the compassion that the Son will bring. This is the light that the world needs. Isn't the world always talking about compassion? Don't you hear that? Whatever you're listening to on the internet or your iPhone or Samsung, Google, Galaxy, whatever it is you got. Podcasts, blogs, TV, whatever. If you still read a paper, maybe, or, or whatever. Everything's about compassion. We need to have compassion. Oh, we need to have compassion. Let's have compassion. And all the while, nobody can get compassion. If you get compassion from one group, then another group says, we hate you. If you get compassion from that group, then another group says, we hate you. One group, compassion. Another group, hate. It's all around, and we never get compassion. But the promised son is a promised son. He is eternal in compassion. He will save his people. He is promised to have compassion. He will not lose one of them. Will he bring judgment and reconciliation to the whole of the cosmos? Yes, he will. And yet he will have compassion on many. And he will usher many into his kingdom. 
and he will not lose one of them. He will take those little lambs and he will shepherd them and he will lead them to those pastures of green grass, to those waters of cool brook that they can just put their tongue in and drink and be refreshed. He will lead them in compassion. The problem for most people is is the compassion they want is to be able to go before God and say, God, you accept me for who I am and I'll be who I am when I want to, and I will not change even for you. And that's the problem with the long line of leavers, that they will not bow the knee to God and say, I am a sinner, and I have sinned against you and you alone, first and foremost, O God. I am in need of your compassion to me, that I would hate my sin, and I would love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Fourthly, he is eternal in peace. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now what's interesting here is that if this were only about a physical peace in a physical earthly kingdom, then Israel would not see that. The northern kingdom, now remember these prophecies are being made. Isaiah 7 is being made approximately around 735 B.C. Isaiah 9 is approximately around 730 B.C. And that means that about eight years later the northern kingdom would be completely destroyed by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. That means that within 115 or so years, Babylon would come in and it would take over the Assyrians, it would take over the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and all of Israel, both kingdoms, would be in captivity and be in ruin. It means that by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the temple and the walls of Jerusalem are being rebuilt, in the 500, early 500 B.C.s and the later 400 B.C.s, that Israel would never be at a time of real peace once again. They would always be under the judgment of either the Egyptians or the Greeks and Romans. It means when this sun comes to the earth, during the age of the ruling, reigning Roman Empire, that the Jews had already been subjected for some 700 years. If it was only about a physical, earthly setup, if that's all that mattered, then that's never happened. That's never been returned to the Jews. And even when we get into the New Testament, that's never even the fullness of the promise. The fullness of the promise is that hearts will be changed. He's not just bringing peace in a governmental sense for a physical earthly reign. That in and of itself will take place at his second coming. But what's happening here is the peace aspect, although not about earthly kingdoms, it's about the eternal kingdom. What's Israel's greatest need? They need peace with God. We often overlook that. The greatest problem we have as humans is that we are at enmity with God and God is at enmity with us. Most people don't even like to talk about that biblical doctrine of the idea that God is at enmity with us. We think it's a one-sided issue here that God's sitting up there on his clouded throne somewhere and he's up there, you know, just kind of being the nice guy and we're kind of warring against him and finally we have to come to grips with who he is and we come along and say, oh God, we love you, we love you. We don't recognize the reality of the problem is twofold. As Romans 6 tells us, we are at enmity with God. The weapons of our body 
have become these instruments of war against God in Romans 6. And we're warring at Him and against Him. And He, He is warring against us. And He says, no, no, no. How will this problem be resolved? Well, if it's only an earthly governmental peace... That kind of peace comes and goes. And we have no promise in the New Testament that tells us that the temple will be fully reinstituted and the sacrificial system will be reinstituted. And we need to be thankful for that. What we do have as a promise is that the Son came to bring eternal peace. And in that eternal peace, being born of the Virgin Mary, lived on this earth, and he died a sinner's death. And Hebrews says he became the once and only sacrifice. To have eternal peace with God, we need an eternal Messiah who in and of himself is the eternal prince of peace. He will show on this earth exactly the will of the Father. For he and the Father are of the same essence. The idea of peace here is a peace that is greater than anything we can fathom. That when God looks at one of his children... He will see them in Christ. And when he sees them in Christ, he will have absolutely no holy anger toward them at all. Is that not glorious? You want to talk about a great light? Into the darkness that God would send his son in such a way And don't think for a minute that in the destruction of Israel that God's long-suffering and patience stopped. Oh, it did not. He continued. Not only for the next 700 plus years to show his patience and kindness. He continues to show it today. In a world like ours, we are still a long line of leavers. I leave you with these three thoughts. We are still among the long line of leavers. And the only hope we have is in that promised son. That promised son. Being a long line of leavers, secondly, we are needy people. We're needy people. As Americans, we like to think of ourselves as strong. We like to think of ourselves as people who can pick ourselves up and get it done. I can handle it. I can say this. I can say that. If you, you give me the opportunity, I'll get it done. But before the holy God of the cosmos, who created all things, and he has a plan for every star and every galaxy, he has a plan for every black hole. He has a plan for galaxies that we've not even discovered yet. He has a plan for everything around us. He even has a plan for things that to us don't make sense. Even as we're sitting here today, do you know that this is one of the times of the year we are actually, distance-wise, physically, closer to the sun than we are any other time of the year? doesn't make sense, does it? You would think that we would be further away from the sun. That's why it's winter. But that's not the reality because of the earth's axis and the way it turns and its shape. So when we are closest to the sun, it's actually cooler on the earth. When we are further away, it's actually hotter. And the reason is because of refraction. Does that make sense to you? No, it doesn't make sense to me. But God had a plan for that. Had a purpose for it. He knows the math of it better than we do. And he doesn't even need all the equations because he made the equations. We're a needy people. 
We can put all the telescopes into space we want to. And we're not solving our sin problem. We can start migrating to Mars and the moon and whatever place we can figure out to try to live, whether that's 500 years away or 1,000 years away. And you know what? You know what we'll take with us to Mars? Sin. If we get there, I don't know. We're a needy people, thirdly and lastly. We are in need of the Prince of Peace. I ask you today, will you bow the knee? Or you be like Ahaz and say, I'm just going to do it my way. I don't want to hear about the sign of promise. I, I don't want to bow my knee to you, God. I want to do it my way. I ask that question. Will you bow the knee to the one living God through his son, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you ask that God to give the Holy Spirit and measure to you that he would make you new and whole in Christ Jesus. That he would change your heart by the working power of the Holy Spirit and would not leave you to yourself. We are in need of this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal, compassionate, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to us once again to give us this day that we may glory in you alone. Even as we come to the time of your table, Lord, will you be merciful to us that we would think rightly about our need for your Son, the Lord Jesus. For all those who have repented and believed, will you bring us to the table that we will confess our sin rightly, repenting of our sin before you? We praise you for your long-suffering, merciful kindness to us as sinners. We have never had the patience you have so we can only glory in you alone. We give thanks and honor to you through the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.